Good morning again. Thank you, Brother Keith, for the ministry of the Word of God. And um, we uh, trust that the Lord will still add his blessing to this next hour. Um, let's, uh, let's begin by asking his grace. Father, we would like to uh, thank you that the uh, word that you've given is, is pure, is reliable, genuine, able to discern between the finest uh, detail of the human soul. We ask that you would do so through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So yesterday, I uh, said to you, you know, we're going to talk about um, what the New Testament calls the priesthood of the believer. And uh, some would immediately have in their minds some type of, you know, dress, some type of robe, some type of hood, some type of knife. I don't know what you think, but you just, some kind of cartoon character comes in your head. And um, I have to confess, none of that would be consistent with the Word of God. Now, there are some things that the Word of God says that uh, those caricatures might might um, resemble, but the Word of God talks about being His designated person with precise detail. And so, um, what I wanted to do this morning was to define what we mean by priest or priestess, and uh, it's not some sort of weird concept and some sort of, you know, blood dripping and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's very specific. And then what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at the modifiers of the passage that we've been reading. So if you would turn into your, uh, with your Bibles, turn to second, or first Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll just read a little bit there. And then we'll make some discussion. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse um, uh, 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And obviously, I read those particular verses, taking them a bit out of context because I only have a limited time to, to sharpen our focus. But what I wanted you to see was that the idea, ideas of priesthood are definitely in this portion of Scripture, and as we reviewed yesterday, are reiterated in, in the book of Revelation, both in a, a time-like fashion at the 95 A.D. mark when it was authored, and then in the future when we'll sing of that same idea with the Lord Jesus in His presence. Um, and what we also did yesterday is we went backwards in, in, in biblical history and we sort of looked at how that was a precious concept to the heart of God and how it would be uh, 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 
really uh, presented to the children of Israel and wanting them to embrace this concept, and they, they kind of were reticent of it. And eventually it was relegated to one family, one tribe, and then subsequently one family. And so we could see then when God would author and make things new, this concept would reemerge and it would be kind of precious. So the question would be, well, what is, what is the definition of priest? Well, in the Old Testament... It, it has its uh, root in the uh, Aramaic that, that actually means um, to draw near, to draw near. There's a concept there, to draw near. And, and this, is, this is borne out in, in, the, in the story of the, of the Word of God in that there is an introduction of something at the very onset uh, of, of, of human history. And at the very onset of human history, this, this thing that was introduced was a division was a separation, was a, a, a distance that happened between God and man. That's what was happening at that moment in history. And ever since then, God would, would desire to draw near to man, to, to be near to his creature. And Satan, in his foiling way, would have stolen the loyalty of mankind unto God. But how, how did he do that? Because man was not only fooled, that is, Eve was not only fooled by these, these lies that Satan produced, but man in and of himself uh, decided to, to side against God. He chose the other direction. That in and of itself is called disobedience. That's called sin. And when that happens, there's an inevitable chasm that is created between man and God. And that bothers the heart of God. And it has always bothered the heart of God. And he would do everything and anything necessary to span that gap. And that's what he did through Jesus Christ. And so when he says, listen, I want you to be a generation of those who would draw near, he's saying, I want you to be a people group that draws near to me, that draws near to me, and I would draw near to you. That's even said in the New Testament, isn't it? Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. There's this, this population of people whereby God intends to have that, that distance uh, brought together. First, through the Savior, the firstborn, bringing God to man and man to God. And then we, in the same spirit of such, would follow like course. Now, the cost to do that was infinite. The cost that it took to, to bring the chasm to a close was the cost of his own life, the Lord Jesus Christ. That would, that's what would be necessary to, to bridge this tremendous distance between God and man, uh, forged by my own decision-making. And God would have himself step into the human frame, step into flesh and bones, so that if you were to see him, you would look, he would look like any other ordinary man. But he was not any ordinary man because you could see him and dim- see himself demonstrate the God-like qualities as he healed the sick. I'm a physician. I don't do very well at healing the sick, you know. I, I never forget the one patient. He came, in, he came into my ER. He worked at the Ford Motor Company. He had tattoos from here to here and probably everywhere else. He's, he was a great guy. He walked up to me, or I walked up to him, and I said, what's bringing you in? My chest hurts. I said, that's fantastic. Tell me more. He said, and I asked questions. I have to ask certain questions. I said, do you, do you smoke, smoke anything? Do you mean cigarettes? I said, yes, but what do you mean? And he said, he said, no. And I said, do you drink? He says, no, I don't do that anymore. 
Not since I trusted Jesus as my Savior. That's what he said to me. I said, that's fantastic, isn't it? And, I, and we shared about the gospel and how Christ breached this gap and he brought us close together and how we were separated. And that's what Christ did because he did something phenomenal, something no one could ever do. And what he did was he purposely suspended himself on an object of execution whereby we, whereby God would have all the judgment of sin, mine in particular, laid upon his very son so that he would bear full brunt, full blow, Full and full absolute execution for my crimes and misdemeanors and felonies. And all he would ask, all he would say, was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. And that in and of itself inaugurates you, brings you into this status, this, this, this great gift, this concept called being a priest of God. Has nothing to do with robes, has nothing to do with appearances, has nothing to do with external uh, um, uh, frivolities. It has everything to do with the decision that is made and the provision that God has done for you and I. And that was done through the Lord Jesus Christ on a cross for your sin and mine. It's an age-old story, but it is true as it has ever been. So, priest. Old Testament talks about it in terms of drawing near. What's the New Testament mean? The New Testament, if you were to look up the word, has this idea that uh, means to uh, 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 those who attend to sacred things, very important, special things. You know, We have that concept at our house. We're going to tend to very sacred and special things. Usually, that's the youngest child, right? Gracie is our youngest, excuse me, in our house, and she's a pretty precious little creature. She's about four years old, and, uh, and to now her aged parents, she's kind of very darling to us, and everybody knows, do not mess with the baby, all right? You talk about the wrath of the mom and, or the mother bear and her cubs. Well, how about the father bear, huh? I don't like it either, so. You know, very precious. You have to treat, you're designated, you're separated out to, to mind and tend something of great value. That's the concept in the New Testament. You see, the concept isn't, again, robes and, and look. It, it has to deal with, with this position of responsibility that we embrace and, and that he has given to us as if it were a, a precious thing in his, in his hands, and he wants you to have it. I'm very particular about the things I give to the children. You know, like Gracie, I, I don't really give her the camera, okay? All right? Why? Because she drops the camera. I love my camera. You see, you see I, I just don't do that. We, I, I give it to them, and I want them to care. I want them to hold it, you know, and, and care, you know, don't. I want them to be careful with it. I want them to, 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 to you know, rub it and, and polish it and, and, and keep it clean and, and hold it tight. I want them to treat it sacredly. And that's exactly what he's saying in the New Testament. I want you to be my people group that treat the things of God sacredly, special, 
not common, not ordinary, not the everyday dishes, but I want you to use, treat the things of God with a great sense of deep understanding of the value and significance of which you hold. That is what we are designated to do. And let me say it this way, that we are the only people group We're the only population that God has given this responsibility to. How do you know that? Because it says so in the Bible. This is not going to happen from any others who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. No one's going to appreciate this. No one's going to understand this. No one's going to value this. If it is ever going to happen in the things of God, if there's ever going to be a a, a sacred-like quality maintained or, or continued to the things that God has given us, it's going to be because we embrace our responsibility. It's because we hold it tight. How many times have, have you and I, have, have we've given things to our, our little ones and, and, and we think they're kind of special and it isn't but five minutes later, they're just sort of on the floor of the, of the car underneath everybody's feet, right? You go, oh no, we don't want to break the little special thing from McDonald's, you know. No, that's not how it's supposed to be. If you put the definition together, the definition goes like this. We are set apart. We are are separated out for a unique role to mind the sacred things sacredly. That's what it is. If you just coordinate those definitions of the Old and New Testament, that's where we would be. Now let's go to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we've got a lot of ground to cover. That was just the introduction. You'd go it by my timetable. We may be done sometime tomorrow. Okay. All right, here we go. I want you to look back at verse 5. You also as living stones being built up a spiritual house. Lots of concept and imagery there. We'll skip it. A holy priesthood. Now, the word holy is pretty important here. We're going to spend most of our hour looking at that. I want you to then look also in verse 9, and it says royal priesthood. Now, I'm going to take this latter first. I'm going to look at verse 9 first, and then we'll look at verse 5. So, Royal priesthood, the word itself means kind of kingly, um, royalty, nobility. Those are some of the synonyms that you could throw into this particular word. And so what he's saying is, I have about you this mindset, this idea that you would do things in a manner that would respect the throne, that would emulate kingly action that you would actually produce a momentum of your particular life that would be consistent with the momentum of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, I'm going to make a movie reference, which is extremely dangerous. But how many of you have seen Narnia? Yeah, me too. <laughs> now, I can't remember the little guy's name, but he's the little guy that looks like a hamster. And he has that little sword that looks like a toothpick. What's his name? Yeah, that's the guy. Yeah. All right. All right. Now, all the young people, now they're all Zuna. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And you know what? One thing I remember about that little movie is everything, every time he does something, this is what he says. I do this in the name of the king. Right? And I think, you're such a pipsqueak. What do you mean doing anything in the name of the king? You know what he's saying? It's as if the king was doing this for you. He was saying, I represent the, you know, what is it, Aslan. I represent the king, 
and what I'm going to do for you would be done as if the king himself was here washing your feet or preparing your food or leading you through the wilderness. This is the idea of royal priesthood. We are acting in a sense uh, with the same type of, of dimension and demeanor that the king of kings would do. So we come up with these fancy little, these nice little cliches. What would Jesus do now? I'm pretty sure it's not what I'm doing, right? What would Jesus do now? And that's, a, that's that idea that we are reflecting the nobility of the family which we represent. We lose that, you know. We dumb down the value of our Christianity because the world actually, perhaps with good evidence, criticizes us in such a way and we sort of adopt the devaluation of what God has given to us as children of the king. And you know what we call that? We call that basically believing a lie. And that's not how it is, you see. The royalty that we have as children of God that is born into his kingdom because we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior is a pristine, unique dimension that no other person has rights to except you and I. Thus, when we act, thus, when we give to a brother or sister in need, what are we doing? We're giving in the name of the king. Thus, when you show, give a cup of water to the least of these, what are you doing? It's as if you gave it to him, right? You get this idea that we're just an extension of the king of kings and the lord of lords, of the nobility of the throne room. That's what we are. It's really beautiful. There's a second concept to this, and it's, it's actually illustrated of the fact that, that we were invited, we were brought in to the throne room, undeserved. You see, there's this fellow, his name is Mephibosheth. <laughs> I never had the guts to name my child Mephibosheth. First of all, I was vetoed by Mrs. Wonderful. <laughs> that pretty much ended it right there. But you know, um, Mephibosheth was, was a cripple. It's in 2 Samuel 9. And I, I'm sorry, for the sake of time, we won't turn to this one. But Mephibosheth was um, not only a cripple, he was a descendant of a man that wanted to kill King David. Right? I think you would say that there would be some, perhaps, natural tension between the two families, wouldn't you? Right. And so normally when you when you are brought into your throne in that day, you would kill all your enemies, lest there be some sort of misguided youth think that I'm going to grow up one day and I'm going to take back the throne for my father's name. And so normally you just sort of wipe them all out so there wouldn't be that threat anymore. But David didn't do this. And David didn't do this because of his relationship with Jonathan. Now, in so doing, Mephibosheth survives the civil war that broke out in the Samuels, and, and he uh, probably survived because of, his, of the fact that as a child, he was crippled. The story is, is that as he, as he was carried along in a, in a moment of somewhat hurriedness, uh, the nurse uh, dropped him, fell down some steps, uh, broke, broke, uh, apparently broke his legs or something of the nature. Maybe he was paralyzed. I have trouble figuring out the exact medical thing that happened, but nonetheless was crippled and had to be carried. Now, David, as he's in, in king, as he's uh, now in office, he, he's reflecting on the relationship he had with Jonathan and, and uh, thereby Saul, and in particular Jonathan, his friend, his dear friend. And he said, is there anybody of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? 
And somebody says, well, there's this guy, his name's Mephibosheth. You know, he's crippled. Well, why, why does it say that? You're not supposed to bring the cripple, the handicapped, into the throne room. It's not nice. Not supposed to do that. In the throne room, everybody's supposed to be happy. Everybody's supposed to be perfect. Specimens of humanity. Perfect in form. Good looking. I would not qualify. And so to say that to the king would be kind of like, and David says, I'd like him to come. I'd like him to be here. Go get him. And he brings Mephibosheth in. Now, if you're Mephibosheth, you're not royalty anymore. You're actually enemy. And if you had that knock on the door and said your little, little, little house and said the king would like to see you, what would you think? Yeah, I'd go like this. Okay. Because as far as you know, you're going to your execution. And so you get near a little thing and you go up to the king's door and you're walked in and the, thro- the doors throw open to the throne room and you first see the king on the throne and you see these big banqueting tables and you're going, I'm dinner. And the king says, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth bows before the king and he says, listen, because of your father, I'm going to show kindness to you and forevermore you will eat at my table. You will always eat with the king. You know what that means? You will be treated like royalty. That's what that means. And this is the idea that we have to us. We are brought in as enemies of God. Believe it or not, before you knew the Lord and trusted Christ, you were an arch enemy of God. You would just as soon as he would be dead. And God comes along and he gives you life and he, can, and he shows you that you need that life. You receive that life through Jesus Christ. And he says, you're not going to exist on the back 40 of my plantation. You're not going to be some sort of obscure slave in, in some sort of hut way back in the hills. You're going to eat with me every day by the clock, routinely, because you, my child, are now my royal family. Wow. I'm sorry, which other people group has that right? No one. No one except you and me. See, the Savior, when he does things, he does them really classy, doesn't he? Really well. So, royalty. Not only the meaning of the concept, but its expression. I do things in the name of the king. I'm now the emissary of nobility. That's how we are. All right, let's this holiness thing. Let's go back to verse 5. It says, holy priesthood. Now, holy, as you know, um, means simply has the idea of to be separated out, to be distinct, to not be common. I hate to tell you this story, but I'll tell you anyway. And, and I know you think we're back, back when I was growing up, back in the 60s and 70s. That's kind of a long time ago. And it was last millennium, in fact. And, and we, we had this dog, you know. And I know it's not sanitary. We didn't care about that back then. But we let the dog clean the dishes. And then we'd put him in the dishwasher. My mother would crank it up to like 185, and we'd sterilize the whole thing, okay. Well, one day... We let the dog clean the dishes, and we forgot to turn the dishwasher on. The next morning, we ate off those dishes. You're telling me. Now, my mother's Japanese, and you've got to know something about the Japanese. They are very clean people. I thought she was going to have a heart attack. Right? 
And you know what we did that day? We had dishes that we would then, from then on, allow the dog to touch and dishes that the dog could never touch. All right? See, this is the idea. We separated out what we would use never to be allowed that tongue of that animal to even drip its saliva. Right? This is the idea. Poor illustration, yes, but nonetheless, graphic, you'll never forget it, that... That you are intended to be separated out for unique and special purposes. And the terminology and the concept is littered all over the New Testament. For example, when he is writing uh, Timothy, he says things like this. I want you to be vessels for honor. In a house, there are vessels used for dishonorable purposes, where the dog can lick the dish, and and you have dishes which are used for honorable purposes, and you separate yourself out for the honorable purposes because, by the way, you're nobility and that's what you do, right? So you separate that out. You have this concept whereby you are unique, special. Now, our brother Keith pointed out yesterday, very appropriately so, that there's two sides to this idea of separating out. It's not a separating out as if it were isolation. That's not, separation does not equate to isolation, meaning I'm just going to go in my little quarters in some sort of faraway place, and I won't bother you, and you won't bother me, and I'll be in my little cubicle, and my little Bible, and I'll do everything here, and you stay over there, and you don't talk to me, and I don't talk to you. That's called isolate. That's not the same as separated out. It's separated out for usable reasons. Now, the two concepts are simple. The one is to leave something so that you can go to, some, uh, to, to something else. You, you, you separate from something so that you are separated unto something. Now, that is also all over the New Testament. If you would turn just one page over to 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll hear that concept in chapter 1. Look at what it says. It says, therefore, in verse 13... Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lust. That's that separation away from something. So do not allow yourself to be molded and shaped by the lust that used to be of the old nature. Don't let that dominate you. Don't let that control you. This is what he says. You separate out from that. Whoops. And it goes like this, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's separated unto, and look at what it says, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. In other words, as the apostle John has written in in his uh, first epistle, he's saying it is in your spiritual DNA that you are to walk in a separated like mentality that you are not of the world anymore, that you are not of someone who uh, who is controlled by the, the lust that would dominate the old nature. You are actually different now. You have a quality about you that is innate, innate in your spiritual DNA. So therefore, live according to such genetic makeup, spiritually speaking. I want you to, to foster that. You be holy because why? Because your father, your originator, The one who bore you has that quality about him. Do we not do this with our children? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've said this. You said to your child, what's your last name? Well, my name's Price, right? They go, oh, Price? 
Exactly. Act like one. Do you mean expensive? Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> they don't say that. I threw that in for effect. Here, the point is, is that we expect our own offspring to behave in a manner consistent with the family dynamic and code and, be, and, and standard that we're trying to, to uh, uh, in, inscribe upon their souls. There's no different with spiritual things either, except it's a, it has a little bit more teeth to it. He gives us a new nature that has a new spiritual DNA, that has a new genetic makeup, and he is expecting us to behave accordingly. Holy priesthood, separated out, separated unto. That's the idea. Now, this, uh, this concept of separated from and separated unto, it's in all the New Testament books. I have them here if you'd like to see them, but if you just take for a moment Galatians, you know, that whole thing in Galatians 5 about walking in the flesh and the spirit is at war with the flesh and there's enmity and there's this battle and, and the deeds of the flesh are, are uh, revelries and, and, and fornications and adulteries and lying and all that kind of stuff. And he says, but... You put on, you walk in the Spirit and, and love and joy and peace. And you see that separated from, unto. You see the same thing in the book of Ephesians where he says, now, you put on the new man, right? You take off the old man, you put on the new man. You see it in Colossians. He says this now, uh, we, we, you set your, your mind on the things above, not on thing, the earth, things of the earth, because those things are done for you now. Part of our problem in terms of our doing things in the name of the king is we haven't wrestled what it means with what it means to be separated unto the king. That's a big one. That is such a big one. I'd like to take a minute or two to look at Leviticus chapter 10. Would you turn there with me? Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10 is a story about Nadab and Abihu. These are two sons of Aaron, and they, uh, in this little chapter, sort of stuck in here. It's, it's a little bit odd how it just sort of surfaces as a historical event in the book of Leviticus, but it's, he's making a point about what holy priesthood is about. Now, when he does, he's going to tell you about these two sons' actions, and you'll find that there will be an expected level of holiness, of separation in their action and their reaction, in their emotion, and in their decision. All facets of the human dimension are to be separated out into God. Here we go. Ready? It goes like this. Verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. Now, I'll stop right there, but here's the, here's the thing. You had to have to visualize the tabernacle and, you know, the tent divided in, in two-thirds and one-thirds sections. And in the first two-thirds had that, uh, that golden censer thing. And then outside of this tent, you know, if it was to my right, it would be, uh, it would be the, the, the bronze altar there where the sacrifices were burnt. And according to Leviticus 16, I think it's verse 10, you had to take uh, uh, coals off of that altar and you would put it in this little device uh, uh, that would create heat underneath it. And this mixture, pure mixture of equal parts uh, for the incense would be put on top. And then you would take that and you would take it into the, to the tabernacle, into the meeting. Now, it was a very specific protocol. It was a very precise protocol. 
You could not alter it. It was exactly what God had said. Now, it is unclear exactly what they did wrong because it says they took profane fire. But based on that Leviticus 16.10 passage, we have to assume that perhaps they took coals of fire from somewhere else. They had a critical breach of action. It was not separated unto God. What was the result? Well, look what happens. And fire before the Lord, excuse me, he offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. Then so fire went out from the Lord, devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now, um, in my career, I've seen three badly burned victims. I, I've, one lady I remember I intubated, and she was not going to make it. But the worst person I've seen badly burned, I hope you don't get sick, <laughs> but he was burned from the crown of his head, to the sole of his right foot. His skin was perfectly black and it was a quarter inch thick because that's what happens when skin coagulates. I'll never forget that. I can still smell the burnt flesh when I walked in that room that day. It was one of those sights in medicine where you go, oh, and you can't move. I'll never forget it. I did things to that man and his, li- and his body that you would do maybe once in an emergency medicine career. I did three of them in 10 minutes. It was one of those days that, that just, you just, I, I, I wake up dreaming about that. The man was alive when he came in, but not when he left. I often wondered what it would be like to see burnt corpses on the, on the, on the ground and to be the cousins that had to go in and take them out, you see. Now, this must have been a serious thing. I mean, why would God do such drastic action? I mean, we're just kind of finding our way, aren't we? We're just sort of learning the ropes, aren't we? Well, no, I think God was pretty clear about what he stated. I think he was pretty clear about the protocol. And what was at stake was what you read next. Look at what it reads next. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people... I must be glorified. How is he glorified? He is glorified because we treat him with the right amount and the right uh, uh, quality of separation that he deserves and demands because that's who he is. We are to fall in line with that holiness. We're not to alter it. We're not to, to dumb it down. We're not to mar it or graffiti it. We are to hold to it. And my friends, I think that's one of our biggest problems when it comes to our public testimony I can give you case after case in my own life where I've been anything but holy before the unbelievers. Right? Holiness is a necessary and appropriate part of what he's given us in terms of our new identity. It is not to be bartered with. It's not to be reduced. It's not to be substituted. It's not to be uh, uh, altered in any way, shape, or form. Holiness is something we must accept. This is what we are called to be. Separate unto me. And these fellows, as they were in that temple that day, they took what they shouldn't have taken from some other source, it seems. And in so doing, God reaches out in no uncertain terms and makes it clear from the very word go, holiness is exactly what this is about. And you cannot come into my presence unless there is a dealing with one's unholiness. And of course, that was ultimately and fully dealt with at the cross. That's what that brazen altar means, a sacrifice. And we take from what he's done. We apply it to ourselves. We bring it to God. That's the only way it works. 
And that mystique, that motif, is to follow all of the days of our lives. Now, notice what happens next. There was holiness that was breached in action, but notice what what it says in verse 3, the end of verse 3. So Aaron held his peace. He had to hold his reaction, right? I mean, if I was a father and that happened and it happened in an instant, I'd go, what are you doing, right? God immediately spoke to Moses who spoke to Aaron and said, there's a principle at stake and it was violated and this is the result of that. And he was saying to Aaron, don't say a word. There's no words that could be said. You need to understand that too, Aaron. When you are, your family is a family and, and serving in my, my arena of priesthood, this is a key principle and it will mean even, even the death of those who violate it, even if they're your sons, you see. His reaction. I don't know about you, but I, I've had actions that have been wrong, but I've had reactions that have been terribly wrong. Back early in my career as a physician, I just graduated, I just started. About 25 or plus years ago, I was sitting in the ER and, and I was feeling the tension building me. Do you ever feel like that, men? Disaster is happening around you. Heart attack in bed one. Miscarriage in bed two. Stroke in bed three. Bed four, I have no idea why you're here, and I don't even think you need to be here. <laughs> bed five, bed six, and it's just happening. I'm feeling it, and I, you know, I, I can feel the redness. I can feel the whole thing, and, and little things really start to, is this happened to anybody but me? Little things start to irritate you, like you drop your pen on the floor. You reach down to pick it up, and you smack your head on the counter. And you say you want to look up to God. What was that for? You know. <laughs> and I'll tell you, a couple of those things happened in a row. I answered the phone because I had a call from it. I turned around. I pulled the phone off the table. And it falls on the floor and busts in about a thousand pieces. And you know what I did? In my reaction, my mouth uttered things which should never have been uttered ever by a believer. Yeah. My reaction. Those are the things that you do when you're not thinking, when you're not calculating, when you're not measuring, they just come out. And I'm ashamed to admit that to you. We don't have to go far for illustrations. My hall of shame is filled of many. That was one of them. My reaction. How many of us have reacted? We didn't think about it. We didn't plan on it. It just came out. Hey, is it, did you happen to take that? No, I didn't. And we lied. Anybody do that here? Right? Yes. You see, what needs to happen is we need a saturation with the Word of God so that when you ring us out at a moment, we drip the Word of God. We drip the truth of God. We drip the character of God and not the other. Oh, what was the other thing that happened? Well, it goes like this. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not cover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail, uh, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You know what he's saying? According to Leviticus chapter 21, you weren't allowed in the, as a priest to mourn, to do the funeral thing, right? You weren't allowed to do that. He was saying, I want you to be separated in your emotion, your emotion, You see, what he's telling us is simply this. I need you to have all dimensions of your life 
so wrapped up in my word and what I say and how I say it that you are separated even in your emotions. But I want you to look at the last one with me because time is really slipping away. I want you to look at verse 9. Begins in verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron. Now that's unusual. Normally the Lord spoke to Moses and Moses spoke to Aaron. So now the Lord is speaking directly to the father of the deceased. So this is a precious, this is an important instruction. He says this. Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons. You mean like the boys that just died? Possibly so. When you go up to the tabernacle of meeting, like the boys that just died? Possibly so. Lest you die like they just died. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Oh, notice this. That you may distinguish between holy and unholy. Doesn't that sound like uh, verse 3? That you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean. I want you to think about this with me, and we'll end on this note. Those are code words for, I'll end shortly. Here's how it goes. For whatever reason, it, it, it's interesting that this instruction in this kind of event comes right together. So I have to surmise that perhaps these young men were under the influence of something that altered their decision-making, that altered their ability to see what is separated and not separated, between what is clean and unclean. I have to assume that based on the context of how the data is put together. And when I do so, I can see, I can see the effects of alcohol. Some here have come from a world of alcoholism. Some have, have, have known the effects that that drug has upon your faculties. And you do things that you would never normally do. I will never forget some of the patients that I would take care of as they come in, totally inebriated, unconscious. And they would use the facility on the cot as I stitched up their head, right? That would be something you normally wouldn't do. You wouldn't think about. You wouldn't normally happen if, if you had your faculties, if you were thinking straight or clear. That was the first lesson in medical school. What does alcohol do to you? It removes your inhibitions. And if I knew what an inhibition was, I would have been smart. But of course it means it removes those normal moral blocks that you have because of your upbringing and it takes those away and you do anything and everything and some things you're quite ashamed of and many things you don't remember. And so what I think was happening here is that they were under the influence of something, some substance that altered their ability to make clear-cut crystal spiritual decisions. And what God is saying is that when it comes to holiness, you must also be careful of those things which would cloud your spiritual judgment. Now, sometimes today, even the believer, they mess around in the world of alcohol and it clouds your judgment. Now, it's a whole other discussion about what the New Testament and all of the Scripture says about alcohol, and we can carry that on at another time. I want to stick to the point. The point is that as New Testament priests, as those who have been given this royal order, this holy calling, how many things is it that invade your soul that cloud your ability to make spiritually discerning decisions? Well, what things might those be, Steve? Well, let me ask you this. Are you an angry man? Does that cloud your soul? You ever been angry? Yeah. Yeah, make great decisions when you're angry, don't you? Say things that you want to keep forever, don't you? No, I'm being facetious, of course. 
how come you can speak that way, Steve? Because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a criminal. I've done those things. How about, how about this? How about selfishness? Does that seem to alter one's ability to make spiritual discerning decisions of what is holy and unholy? Just being se- that you think of number one first and foremost. Does that, does that ever cloud anybody's decision? Let me ask you this. How about selfishness in a marriage? That works, doesn't it? Okay, it doesn't work. The answer, that was a rhetorical question. No, it doesn't work, you see. It kills the marriage. Marriage is a beautiful thing, but it also can be an anvil in which the God of selfishness must die or somebody's really going to get hurt. And I know that there are many of us here who have historical record of that very fact. What other things cloud our judgment? Is it, is it just related to alcohol? What other things can have this external influence upon us that, that corrupt our ability to be holy as he is holy? How about bitterness? How about bitterness? I got my nose frosted, and it's still frosted 20 years later. What, what is that? What do, you, what do you call that? That's called bitterness. How about when somebody in the assembly, uh, somebody, a family, and they do something, and they, and they say things against you? And you can't track it down, but you hear about them, and you want to get angry about them, and you, want to, and you wake up at night thinking about what you would say to that person, and you ride in the car, and you have this invisible conversation as if that man was next to you, and you say all the things that you'd want to say. Anybody do that? Maybe just me. Maybe. Those things have a way of corrupting your ability to discern between that which is holy and unholy, that which is clean and unclean. And any breach of that protocol does not glorify God whatsoever. And we go to our places of worship and we sit in that pew with that bitterness in our soul and we rise up and we say, may we sing hymn number 87. Lord Jesus, I love thee. Something wrong, isn't it? Something's desperately wrong with the holiness of the priesthood to which we've been given. And my friends, I think this is where revival begins. This is exactly where we need to put the stake in the ground for revival because this is where we're failing. I believe with all of my heart that if we begin with brokenness, he will meet us with blessing. If we begin with contrition, He will meet us with dwelling. How do you know that? Isaiah 66. Heaven is my earth, or heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. I use the heavenly bodies as as my living room furniture. But I don't care about that. I want to be with one person. Let me tell you what that one person looks like. One who is contrite and trembles at my word. That's where we need to be. Don't you think so? Oh, there's way more things that control the heart. There's the lust of the flesh. You ever, you ever live like that? Every waking thought is to consume the next thing that didn't satisfy the previous time. Do you ever have that? Now, obviously today, much of it is built in pornography and lust of the flesh. I tell you, that's, that's an issue that, that we have to face. As I told the young people, that's a giant that needs to go. But it's not just the lust of the physical flesh. It's the lust of that which would be for possessions. Do not set your eyes on money, on riches, lest it take wings like eagles and fly away. I can tell you a story where my Savior taught me that in no uncertain terms. I almost lost my life. He made sure I understood the principle 
of riches flying away. My dear beloved, I want to ask you, have you embraced the holiness of the priesthood to which you've been called? Or are we just, are we just playing around? We got one foot right and one foot left, and we're not about to move them together. I think if there's anything that happens in 215, we are revived as it pertains to being separated unto God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we have come, we've considered a few precious things, and this will take a measure, a great measure of your Spirit to take these matters which have been poorly communicated and you magnify them in the heart of your children, the heart of those who may not know you, so that we would become those who follow you without anything reserved for ourselves. Father, we ask you to do this precious work through your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.